Get ready for a week-long celebration of music, community and fabulous fun with Joy Radiothon 2024. Joy has the largest collection of rainbow podcast content in the world and you can help keep us out loud and proud by donating during Joy Radiothon 2024. Just go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. Mark it in your calendars because Joy Radiothon returns June 1st to 7th and remember, we all flourish with joy. This is How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter on Joy 94.9, the show answering the questions you didn't even know you had. This week's guest is the coordinator of the Marine Response Unit at Melbourne Zoo, Mark Keenan. We chat about what it is that the Marine Response Unit does, how we all need to be better to help save animals from avoidable injury and harm. Plus, Mark's very interesting career path that got him where he is today. Excitingly, this episode mentions not only marine life, but also butterflies, elephants, and orangutans. I see these animals. I see the suffering from some of these animals. So I have this real connection to the suffering that sometimes these animals endure. And knowing that we can relieve that suffering or or reverse the wrongs that sometimes humans cause is a really powerful thing. And it's a really motivating thing for me to get up every morning and try and get better at what we do and, and encourage people to get better at preserving wildlife. As we just mentioned, Mark is the coordinator for the Marine Response Unit at Melbourne Zoo. What is the Marine Response Unit? It was sort of established in 2013. So the zoo had a long history working with marine wildlife and helping marine wildlife, but it just became evident that we couldn't do it on an ad hoc basis. It was just pulling too many resources. So they said, let's let's formalise this and put someone in a position that can do this work on an ongoing basis. And it primarily was about seals at the beginning. So it was about looking at seal welfare across the state of Victoria and, and, and trying to deliver good outcomes for seals, but it encompasses a whole bunch of other marine species from seabirds to dolphins to sharks to rays to turtles to fish to you name it, whatever someone calls up and says, hey, does this animal need help and can you help it? People call up and say, hey, you know, we have this animal presenting in this fashion. Is this normal? You know, does it need help? And and, and our job then is to, to sort of ascertain whether it does and, and try and deliver an outcome in the best manner we can. So if I called the marine response unit, maybe say I saw a penguin, for example, Would Mark and his team automatically go to the scene or are there other ways for them to find out what's going on first? It's totally scenario and species specific. So if it was a penguin per se, you know, they're not a particularly dangerous animal. And if you were to find a compromised penguin on a beach, I would probably encourage you, if you had the capacity to do it safely, to grab that penguin and and get it to somewhere where we could, you know, triage and have it cared for appropriately. But if that was a seal then I'd be more inclined to ask questions and then it might be us that's the first respondent because, you know, we're the only organisation that actually sort of responds directly to seals across the state. If it was a penguin and I picked it up, would I take it to you? Yeah, like, well, it's geographical. Like, I mean, because we sort of deal with wildlife across the state. So, you know, obviously if you're a malacuta and pick up a penguin, I wouldn't be encouraging you to bring it to Melbourne Zoo. So, but obviously if you were sort of, you know, and Brighton perhaps, you know, I would say, yeah, look, we would be the, the geographically the logical place to take the bird. So it really, as I said, it's scenario dependent and, and geographically dependent as well. Okay. So the Marine Response Unit literally responds to calls regarding injured marine wildlife. They will either try and treat the animal at the scene or they'll bring it back to the zoo for treatment with the aim to re-release. For the sake of word economy, I'll call the Marine Response Unit the MRU from now on. 
And here's why Mark thinks it's important. Because we live in a beautiful country surrounded by beautiful wildlife and, you know, and it's in everyone's best interest to do what we can for it. And um, I'm lucky enough to be on the forefront of that. And, you know, I'm passionate for wildlife and, and I think what Zoos Victoria does and what we're doing is incredibly important because a future without wildlife would be a very, very sad future indeed. Now we know a little more about the MIU. I wanted to know more about how Mark came to be the coordinator of the unit. Do you have like a degree in marine biology or something similar? Yeah, it's not marine biology, but I do have an environmental science degree. So that sort of underpins some of the work I do for sure. And did you always want to work with marine wildlife? Uh, That's a good question. I grew up on the coast, so I was always a passionate sort of snorkeler and diver and things like that. And on my zoo journey, I just had that opportunity put in front of me to work with marine wildlife. And then the the marine response unit began, which was sort of an ad hoc adventure that the zoo had always partaken in. But when that was put before me, I went, yep, that's for me. Here Mark talks more about his journey at Melbourne Zoo. I was a zookeeper. So I've been at the zoo for nearly 15 years now. I started my zookeeping career in the Butterfly House and worked with elephants and orangs for a long time as well before I moved into the marine department at, at Melbourne Zoo. So 15 years ago, when Mark started at the zoo, did he just see an ad for the Butterfly House and thought, that sounds like me? How did he get into the zoo initially? No, like, I mean, it's a, it's a hard industry to break into. So it had taken me two and a half years of sort of hard work to break in. I'd been doing lots of volunteer work, doing as much as I could. And, and ironically, it was, it was just a bit of volunteer work I had done directly out of university, working with invertebrates, was that was the flag that my then employer saw and was like, I want to give this kid a go. So yeah, I'd been working to get in the zoo forever. And it was just this two week little block of volunteer work experience that was the difference for me getting that first job. So did Mark always want to work at the zoo? Was that his aspiration? I always, like, I mean, I always wanted to work in wild places and with wildlife, I think, and sort of went on a different tangent in life for a long time and then sort of realised that I wasn't really doing what my passion, you know, where my passion sat. So I went, look, I'm going to do this. Everyone says that, you know, you never get a job as a zookeeper, but I thought, well, someone's going to be a zookeeper, so all I have to do is work as hard as the next person, and, and that could be me. So I just sort of put my put my thoughts to it and worked really hard until it eventuated. Earlier, Mark mentioned that he went on a career tangent before the zoo. I asked him what that tangent was. <laughs> Skateboarding. <laughs> yeah, I worked in the skateboard industry for a long time, so and it was great. You know, I, I you know, it, it kept me young, and I really enjoyed that space. But I thought I can't do this forever, and I really want to get back to working you know, in conservation and working with animals. So Now, this is probably a wild question, but do you think that your work in the skateboard industry has informed any of your zookeeping at all? Wildly, it has. I remember when, when I had the opportunity to work with elephants, the fact that I participated in skateboarding and had sort of this dangerous background, if you like, or this willingness to throw myself in situations that some people wouldn't they went well this guy is obviously a bit of a risk taker so you know maybe he'd love to come along and work with elephants not that elephants are risky but just sort of saying you know they're big intimidating animals and this guy's you know a little bit different the skill set of skateboarding though probably you don't really need that you know what it might sound cheesy but i often find myself having to balance in precarious positions and climb down rock faces so at least being pretty stable on my feet is probably a good thing like that's that's a bit of a borrow but yeah maybe I found it super interesting how Mark saw the benefit of his previous skateboarding in his current role at the zoo, and how those skills and attitudes translated to his role responding to injured marine life. Getting back to that role, 
I asked how he transitioned from butterflies, elephants and orangutans to where he is now. I had been working with the Marine Department at the zoo for probably three and a half years before the MIU role. So we were sort of undertaking this role on an ad hoc basis, as I said, but then it sort of became a concrete role. And I was fortuitous enough to, to get that role. And, and, and that was back in 2013. So this has been my primary job for you know, seven and a half years now. So a lot of your, your learning and your skills have been developed on the job in the last seven years. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and it's been sort of thrown in the deep end learning. So having worked with seals and penguins and the stuff at the zoo, I had a really good understanding of how they move and how they behave and how, how they think. But, um, you know, there's a big difference to, to triaging wildlife remotely or, you know, going out in the field and actually rescuing that wildlife and, and the logistics of helping that wildlife as best you can. Mark has been coordinating the MIU for seven years. I asked him what a regular day on the unit looks like. There, there's no such thing. You know, like <laughs> I can literally walk in and, and just be completely, yeah, unaware of what's coming. You never know what sort of calls you're going to get and what sort of responses you're going to have to undertake. But, you know, for the last two days, I've, I've you know, I was at Y River two days ago and then Queenscliff the next day and, and then today has been relatively quiet so it's been an office day so you just never know it, it, we're, we're at the whim of the universe and basically we see what what comes from natural events and, and what animals are sort of under duress so you do have some days that are paperwork marks job yeah totally yeah we all do and that's good because you have to consolidate all the work you do and we do a broader range of work so sometimes it's not just about the rescue side of things it's about you know trying to prevent these happening these things happening in the first place so you know we have scientific objectives to go well, why does this keep happening and how do we mitigate that so there's always these other projects that help us do our job better mark's job obviously has ebbs and flows when he is out in the field though what are some scenarios he and his team face I mean, we see lots of different things. We see entanglement, so we see lots of animals caught in marine debris. We see trauma from natural things to, to things that are caused by human factors. We see illness, we see natural attrition, we see a whole bunch of different things. I can imagine that would be really tough, but also very validating, I guess, to be able to actually make a difference. Yeah, we work with a team. So we have a team here that works so, so hard and, you know, uh, we exist on the basis of welfare, so we always want to do what's in the best interest of the animal. So we don't shy away from that, um, and we we see a lot of animals. So it's incredibly validating for all the people who put in so much hard work to go out and you know have that moment where you've disentangled an animal and, and given another chance at life or or something like that. So yeah, we work work really hard for the, our outcomes, and they're not always you know animals being rehab and released, but we still think that it's a really wonderful thing to be able to, to have an animal uh, leave this world in dignity. And, and not, you know, not suffer unduly. With his team's aim being to rehabilitate and treat animals, or at the very least, offer support to a dying animal, what actually happens if Mark and his team are called out and need to find an animal? Quite often when we are responding, we've already sort of got some idea of what an appropriate intervention would look like. So typically we go out into the field expecting to bring that animal back. Sometimes we do assess and go, you know, let's stand down and give that animal a little bit more time or we think that animal will pull through this because interventions are pretty heavy thing, you know, bringing a wild animal into a veterinary environment is pretty scary. So, and it, and it's big logistics and, you know, bringing a seal back to the zoo, you know, they're big animals. So we don't do that lightly. So sometimes it is assessing, but when we're in the field, you know, we might actually do a, a capture and release an in situ thing where we can actually free an animal and release it there. That's, that's beautiful. But if we do need to bring it back to the zoo for further assessment, then that's what we do. 
Does Mark and his team mainly treat animals on the scene? No, most of the time, like, I mean, if I was honest, I would say it's probably 80% of the animals come back to the zoo. And the reason for that is wildlife has evolved to, you know, avoid getting caught or eaten or by the time you can catch an animal, the animal tends to be in a fairly bad way. In certain circumstances, certainly you can release an animal and release it there and that's great. But for the most part, by the time, if we can catch an animal, then it probably needs further assessment and, and, and looking at it at the zoo. In an average week, how many calls are you getting? We probably, at the moment, we're getting, we're, and it's not just about calls, it's about cases, right? So we're probably undertaking two or three cases every day, but you can literally have cases where you could get 100 calls. You know, sometimes we have an animal that's that we're sort of monitoring, giving it an opportunity to succeed in the wild and not intervening, and we might watch an animal for, for a month and, and, and just get countless calls and just be constantly reassessing and, and having processes in place to protect the animal. But, yeah, so there's, you know, as I said, there's... Not any one day or any one case is the, is the same as the next. Mark has reiterated that no two days or cases are the same. I wanted to know if he could tell me about any particularly memorable cases. In the last three or four days, we've had a couple of really good wins, which is always super validating it. So we had an Australasian data. I don't know if you know what an Australasian data is, but it's a beautiful water bird. And it was on the Yarra River and it had a baby sock stuck on the end of its beak. And it sounds really ridiculous, right? You're like, it's got a sock on the beak. That doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world. But literally they have a, a really, really pointy beak and, that, and it's got the finest tooth comb you can imagine on its beak. And it's because they, they're an underwater fisher and when they catch fish, the comb sort of stops the fish swimming away. So when this bird's been underwater, it's obviously seen a sock, a little baby sock and gone fish stabbed it with its beak and then this sock is literally stuck on the end of its beak never to come off because of the comb sort of restricting this sock getting away and the bird's completely unable to eat and will just starve to death so we got a call about this bird and and we're able to catch it which is no mean feat because they are you know olympic swimmers they are incredible underwater like a dolphin and they fly very powerfully so it took us five hours and lots of planning and and but we were able to catch this bird and bring it back to the zoo, get rid of the sock and then release it the next day, knowing full well that we were the difference between the, this bird living and, and dying. That's wild and five hours to catch it. Five hours to catch and that's good. We've, uh, we've taken 11 days to catch one of these birds before. Yeah. So to catch it in, in five hours was, like, was a, a serious record for us. So we were pretty happy with that. It must be super terrifying for the animal because it doesn't want to be caught by humans, but you wish you could speak to it and say, we're only trying to help. Oh, totally. It's actually, it's actually sometimes the most distressing part of the job because you know what you're doing is terrifying for the animal and you, know, and you want to be seen as the good guy. And yeah, you'd love it if they played ball and, and, and did their part. But yeah, absolutely. They are trying to get away as you as best you can because they see you as a threat and they'll fight you as much as they can. And it's, yeah, it's anthropomorphic. You know, it's a human emotion put on an animal but quite often when we when we release them you know you you look for that 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 moment where they look at you and go actually you weren't such a bad guy after all and I don't think it's a thing but you know it's uh it's actually really validating when you get that look back from an animal on release and they look at you and you go yeah you know where the good guys <laughs> I can imagine seals would do that and this data did it as well she um she sat on the bank for for about 30 seconds looking at us and sort of you know you were like well you've just had a pretty traumatic event but she sort of sat there and gave us a bit of a, a good look of her before she flew off into the into the sunset here mark tells me another story from his week 
The other one was pretty crazy as well. It was a much easier catch. So the other one was a, a ridiculous catch. But this bird, we had a member of public call up to say that the, there was a black swan that had fishing line coming out of her mouth. And so we went down to find this bird. And we knew this bird because one of the parents of this bird was a banded bird. So it had an identifier. So we went down and found this bird. But there was two signets. And neither of them had line coming out of their mouth. But we we're like, well, we can't grab them because we don't want to separate them from the group. We don't know which bird it is. But we were able to sort of, luckily, the member of public had taken a photo of the bird before she called it in. And we were able to tell by subtle markings on the bird that we we're like, we think it's that bird. So we brought it back to the zoo and had x-rays and didn't have any hooks. But we were concerned that maybe it had been swallowed a whole bunch of fishing line and it, it would have compaction in its gut and would, would ultimately die in the long term if we didn't do something. So we got out the endoscope and the vets, who are absolutely incredible, and the vet nurses, they, they went down inside this bird and, and couldn't find anything. But on the way back up, they bought up a big ball of cotton and the big ball of cotton actually was traced back to looping twice around the very, very base of the tongue and it almost severed the, the whole bird's tongue off right at the base, this line, but they were able to carefully extract it all, suture up the tongue, get the bird up and running and we were able to release that one as well. That is wild. Yeah, it would have been in so much pain, so subtle. It was so lucky that this member of public was good enough to see it and call it through. But, you know, to have that veterinary experience and the expertise here to find something like that and then be able to deal with it was just so cool to watch. What a fantastic outcome for both of the birds Mark and his team treated this week. It is alarming how something so innocent, like a baby sock, could have such a dramatic effect. I asked what the craziest thing Mark has seen is. There's nothing pleasant about my job per se, you know, in the, in the sense that we're always out there trying to catch animals that are suffering. But sometimes it's kind of these, to hear a baby sock stuck on the end of a, of a bird's beak, you'd go, well, that, you know, that's the most innocuous sort of object. We've had teething rings stuck around animals' necks. You know, we've had snorkeling goggles caught around seals' necks, strangling them, or, or hat bands, you know. So they tend to be things that, they're things that are quite pleasant in our day-to-day -day life, but in, in an unnatural place, they're, they're really sad and depressing. So I suppose from a, you know, if you looked at it at a really black comedy level and went, well, that's ridiculous. The seal's got, you know, a pair of goggles stuck around its neck. But the reality of that is, is if you don't do something about it, it'll die. But yeah, they're the sort of weird things that stick with you and go, geez, that was, did I just see that? That was pretty strange. So the fact that Mark's job is literally responding to potentially life-threatening situations means it's not the most cheerful job. But certainly the results his team gets are extremely encouraging and validating. We'll get to that a little later. For now, though, I wondered if there were any other parts of the job that weren't so great. I think, it, I think the things that are hard about the job is knowing that we can do better you know, as a, as a species, what people could be doing. And some of the senseless stuff that you just like, to, to have to rescue a bird from a baby sock, you're like, well, that, that could be completely avoided. Or to, you know, have to rehab a, a bird that's been attacked by a dog on a beach when, you know, someone should have had on leash. So that you do, you see things that you go, you know, we, we could be better and we could educate ourselves a bit more. And, you know, we could live more sympathetically with wildlife, I think, is probably what I'm trying to say. What about the best parts of Mark's job? Oh, it's 100% that moment where you have that, you know, that dove releasing moment, you know, when you can release an animal back to the wild, knowing all the hard effort that the team's put in has been validated. So, so whether it's cutting an animal free and, and having it take a big breath and being able to breathe because it had been strangled for the last three months, but now it can breathe and you can release that animal knowing full well that you've made the difference in that animal's life or, or it's been here for six weeks re receiving intense care and then you can watch it waddle down the beach and that's what makes it worth it. So that's pretty cool and, and they're the things that we hang our hat on and go for all the bad stuff that we see and have to endure. You know, it's moments like that that, that keep us doing what we do and, and validate what we do. 
Does Mark think he'll be on the MIU forever? I think the zoo will do this forever and I think they'll do it really well forever and I can see us growing in this space more and more. Me personally, I'd love to be involved as, as long as I can, but a big part of my job is being sneaky <laughs> and catching animals. So, you know, there's going to be a time frame where you're like, yeah, I'm not really sneaky anymore. I'm just kind of old and decrepit. So I imagine that there'll be a surface ceiling for myself, but then, you know, then they'll probably just log me in office and go, well, you're good at paperwork, so keep that up. No, look, I, you know, I'd love to be involved as long as I can. So take it day by day. What would Mark tell someone who wanted to work at the zoo or even pursue a career on a unit like the MRU? I think the, the bottom line is, is that if, if you want something hard enough and you're willing to work for it, you can do anything. You just have to be willing to work for it. And I think that's a, a pretty good motto. And I, like, I mean, I, I'm sure if I asked you about your career and how did you get into radio and you probably would say, well, yeah, I just had to say, you know, that's what I want to do and I'll work hard for it. You just got to remain positive and keep your head down. It's been such an enlightening and informative chat with Mark Keenan all about what the Marine Response Unit at Melbourne Zoo does, how he got there and why it's important that we all try and be more conscious of letting go of things that could end up in our waterways. Before we finish chatting, Mark let us know what to do if we see marine life we think is in danger or struggling with entanglement. If people come across marine wildlife in distress, they can call Melbourne Zoo's Marine Response Unit on 1300 245 678. We work with people all around the coast of Victoria to deliver outcomes, so we're not always the people on the scene, but call us and we can have ourselves look at it or someone else look at it and make sure that we do the right thing by the animals. Just to reiterate. You can call Melbourne Zoo's Marine Response Unit on 1300 245 678. Thank you so much for being on the show, Mark Keenan, and for unpacking what the Marine Response Unit does and why it's so important. For more information about the unit, Mark and his team, you can head to zoo.org.au forward slash fighting dash extinction. Thanks for listening to another episode of How Do You Do That with Emily Tresseter. If you think you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, get in touch. Email howdoyoudothat at joy.org.au. This podcast was produced by Joy Media. You can support Joy's diverse sound and diverse community this June by donating to Joy Radiothon 2024. Go to joy.org.au slash radiothon. And remember, we all flourish with joy. Joy.